Our scripture reading is taken from the entire book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Hear God's word. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. T least the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and its statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord had, has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is a reading of God's holy word. I'm going to stand down here tonight as I teach, and one of the reasons is because uh, during part of this, I want to engage you. That's why I have this. And I'm not going to do it in a way that would make you uncomfortable, uh, like I sometimes do. Uh, <laughs> I like to do that. But I want you to share um, some of the things that you're thinking about as as a man or a woman living in the world we live in today, as a parent or a grandparent, as new parents or expecting parents, or grandparents who are looking at the world and how, how has it changed. So I want you to be thinking of a question you might want to ask or a concern that you would just like to express about where we are as, as a people, 
uh, in this world. So I really want you to be thinking about that because I'm going to walk around and I'm going to let you kind of express what your, your heart and mind uh, are feeling and thinking. And then we're going to move into this text and talk and we'll be finished right around five o'clock and then we'll go in and have a little dinner together, which I think will be fun. But the word of God is powerful and that's where we're going to be soaking. And this passage in Deuteronomy is very, very rich. So before we go there, what's on your mind? I really want maybe five, six, seven people to say, this is, this is what's on my heart and mind. And whether you have kids or not, work with the youth or not, I really want you to share. So who's willing to go? And all I want you to do is say your name and then share what's on your heart. Ed Jarrett. Um, as I think about cultural changes, I'm a baby boomer. I saw the cultural changes of the 60s. How old uh, were you in the 60s? I was, Keep me on, by the way. Keep me hot. Okay. <laughs> I was in college. I'll say it that way. Like um, second year college, sixth year college. <laughs> where, where, where I, I want to know the journey. I started in 1966. Uh, that's the year I was born. <laughs> I know. Maybe Just, this question's for me and him. Now you're, now you're the only one that's going to talk because of what I'm doing. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ed. Okay. Um, you know, I can remember growing up, and as things changed, as culture changed, as I became a father, as I had children, uh, somebody mentioned how the 80s changed things, changed things about the way people interacted. You know, old things weren't as good, weren't as traditional. When I was a young person, we were trying to get away from the establishment and we became the establishment. So my question would be, how do we culturally relate, certainly through the gospel, but as Christians, how do we maintain faithfulness to our vows, our commitments to family, the things that are real and important to God? Okay, thank you. Thank you, brother. Somebody else? Yes, Linda. I'm going to slide over here. Paul, would you pass that back to Linda? I'm Linda McMahon. I'm so encouraged by all the young women and men that I see coming into our church for Bible studies and coming into BSF just by the hundreds. I can't wait to see what God's going to do in the next couple of generations. Mm. I think it's going to be amazing. It's very encouraging. Thank you. Someone else? Don't be shy. Oh, there you are. Tell everyone who you are. I think we all know, but still. No one can remember. (laughs) I'm Nancy Berger, and my question and the things I'm thinking about are our educational system. Hmm. I see how the reading material, the studies in the schools, unless it's a private Christian school, how degenerate they are, and I see hundreds of thousands of dollars to educate our children in the universities. I see them coming out brainwashed, or, and I don't mean all of them, Mm -hmm. but the ones that don't have a really strong foundation really do undermine the culture of this country. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what we can do to help those that don't have the foundation, which are the majority, Mm -hmm. to not not only destroy themselves, but the nation. Yeah, cool. Thank you, Nancy. Okay. What a sweet voice. You all pass that down to Kristen. Hi, I'm Kristen Nutter. I'm on staff here working with student ministry, and I just want to say from another generation, that was my instinctual question, is how do we prepare them for what they'll be receiving in the academic system? That's a big concern of mine, so... Thanks, Kristen. That's very good. Somebody else? A couple more. Really? Ellen, thank you. I'm Ellen Flowers. A frustration of mine and something that I just wonder what we do about um, is that um, it seems to me that young parents today um, give lip service to having as a primary goal their children knowing the Lord Jesus and living for him. Mm -hmm. But in raising them, the emphasis they put is on what grades they make, what college they get into, and what profession they're going to get to make money. And that includes believing parents. Um, The hard thing about having as a goal that your children honor Jesus is that a lot of times they may do things that don't make money, 
put them in danger, send them places you don't want them to go. Um, but that's not what God's word says. How do we transmit that to them? Yeah, that's a great comment and question. Okay, yeah. I'm getting some exercise. That's good after the holiday seasons for sure. Woo pig suey. Woo pig suey. He has a uh, razorback on his shirt. That's why I said that. It's not code. It's not a cult, <laughs> but it's there. And my daughter's a freshman now. So boomer Sooners. I can, so thank, thank you. you. Uh, Did you all hear that? He said Boomer Sooners. That is code for excellent. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, my name is Max McGee, and my concern, I think, just thinking right now, um, is with the authority of Scripture in our culture and both inside Christian lives and outside, um, engaging the culture that doesn't see the Bible as authoritative or even worth looking at once, and then talking to close Christian friends that you've grown up with who are struggling with life decisions but don't seem to think in a biblical frame of mind mm. and take uh, the Bible as their first source of wisdom. Yeah. yeah, that's a great, great comment and question. Okay, anybody else? Okay, good. Well, let's talk about these things. Um, when I was first experiencing the reality that I was going to be a parent, uh, my world began to change, like your world. Uh, the first thing that happened is I realized that I really didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. You got really quiet when I said that. I was almost 30 in the middle of seminary and I taught about the sovereignty of God. Um, I told people why the scriptures speak about the sovereignty of God, that he is all powerful, that he's all knowing, that he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. And I, I, I believe that I guess what I was saying, but when I became a father, I realized I really didn't believe it. If I believed it, then the level of anxiety that was in my life should be different. And here's how I discovered that. Um, Christina and I were talking about starting a family. She was way ahead of me. Um, we had a plan. And that plan was five years after marriage, at the end of seminary, that's the right time. We're in the middle of seminary, and she says, now's the time. The Lord has told me. And she doesn't really mean she heard Julian Russell's voice, and suddenly <laughs> we were supposed to begin to, to, you know, have a child. But I was resistant because he hadn't told me that. I was like, I, no, not yet. And she was like, will you even pray about it? Have you prayed about it? And I hadn't. And so I did. And he did reveal, I have a plan, and you follow me. My wife was very concerned that she was never going to be able to get pregnant. Very concerned. And I know some of you have lived that experience. And I, I can't relate to that. But I can't, I can't imagine how painful that is to want a child so bad. And that's not, at this point in your life, the, the Lord's will. She was very fearful for a lot of reasons that that might be a reality in her life. And so we began to go down that road. Nothing was happening, so she went to a doctor. The doctor began to prescribe some things for her that would, would help. But they didn't. Nothing changed. Nothing started. So she called the doctor, and the doctor said, something should have changed. Something should have happened. So it's very possible that you are already pregnant. So she went in to the doctor. I went with her. The doctor said, the only way we can tell is by doing these tests. They do the test. He comes back and says, you're pregnant. We celebrate. We're excited. But how far along? Nobody knows. He says, we're going to have to do an ultrasound to find out. So he began to do the ultrasound. And we were in the waiting room, or in that exam room, and there's one of those moments where you realize the doctor's concerned. You could tell. And he just looked at the screen. And we looked at the screen. I had no idea what I was looking for. But it didn't really matter because nothing was there. All the tests said you're pregnant, but there was no mass, nothing. And so Dr. Hauk looked at a sweet Catholic, very faithful Catholic man, looked at us and said, you're either in the midst of a miscarriage or 
you're so barely pregnant that nothing can be detected. And we just sit there and looked at him. He said, you have to wait two weeks. In those two weeks, I learned that there was nothing I could do to change what was happening inside my wife's body. Nothing. I was out of control. Two weeks went by. We went back to the office. We walked into the office, the same room, the same machine. And he began to do the ultrasound. And there was a mass. And that mass was fluttering. And I said, is that the heart? And he looked back at me with a tear. He said, that's a child. That is a heartbeat. And I was like, with my wife, praise God, that's her little one in there. This is really happening. But then the fear, of what can I do to make sure that heart keeps beating? What can I do to make sure she comes to full term? What can I do to make sure she's healthy? What can I do to make sure? And I realized I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. I don't believe really in the sovereignty of God. And I had to confess that. And so time goes on. June 23rd. That's wrong. That's a different date. June 17th. She's born. June 23rd is the day I became a Christian. June 17th. She's born. And when she's born, she's 19 now. She's not here. So she's not going to hear what I say. She's heard it before. She's born. She comes out of the womb. And I'm looking at her. And my, my heart is pounding like hers was on that screen. I'm the first one to get to hold her. But I'm like, something's not right. Nurse, she has hair on her ears. And it's long. She looks like Yoda. Is, is, is that going to go away? I'm not joking. I was really concerned. My wife's like, Mark. I'm like, no, that's going to be a problem. You know, the middle school years, that's going to be cruel. They're like, calm down. Holding that child, I realized, not only could I really do nothing to change what was going on in the womb, now what the rest of her life? I, I can't be everywhere with her. She's a freshman at Arkansas. I just mentioned it. I believe a whole lot more in the sovereignty of God now. But when you become a parent, a new love enters into your life, doesn't it? I tell people that. And it comes at different times for different people. Some people don't experience it immediately, but for me it did. And I'm holding this child and I'm like, I'm responsible for protecting you. And I'm going to. I know I've told you this story began, but probably everyone hadn't heard it. When she was a little over two, she was at McDonald's, and we had the McDonald's Playland. Many of you have been to that. Many of you played in one of those. Back in those days, they had a thing called ball pits. Do y'all remember? The ball pits were about this deep, full of little plastic balls. They're disgusting. I have no idea how that became legal. And kids are in there, you know, swimming through them. Who knows what all they're doing? And Kara's in there. And Christina's exhausted holding our newborn, Maddie, the second born. She's barely three months old. And Kara's playing. And a little boy, who's probably four or five, is also in there. And it's just the two of them. And I watched the little boy pick up one of the balls. And the little boy beams my daughter in the head. So I walked over to the ball pit. And I reached in and I took Kara out. And she didn't understand. It hurt. And why would somebody be mean? And I took her over to Christina. And then I should have stayed there. But I didn't. I walked back to the ball pit. I picked up a ball and I drilled the kid right in the head. And I said, it hurts, doesn't it? And then I walked away and said, Christina, we need to leave right now. <laughs> and we got in the car and we were gone. She goes, what, what, what? There's a new level of love that came over me. A new sense of protection. And it, it's deep, isn't it? The first date she went on wasn't really a romantic date. She was a sophomore in high school. Sophomores aren't supposed to go to the prom. But an older boy was interested in taking Kara to the prom. So the older boy asked Kara, Kara, text me during school. Can I go to the prom? I text back, we won't talk about this over the phone. She continued to talk to me over the phone. I continued to talk to her. No, no, maybe, no, no. Right? Finally, you know the rule. Any boy that asks you on a date has to come and meet me first. 
dad, seriously, very seriously. And the boy showed up. Andres, nice boy. He comes into our house, sits in our living room. Dad's dream of this, by the way. He walks in. I told Kara what I was going to do. She knew what I was going to do. I said, you don't have to be here if you don't want to. She goes, I will for a little bit. Dad, be nice. I've never been hunting in my life, but I have my dad's little 410. It was sitting out, you know, right there by the fireplace. I hadn't been fired since 1966, the year Ed was in college. And I am looking at this, looking at him, and he walks in. And I said, hi, Andres, I'm Mr. Davis, nice to meet you. Have a seat. And he sits down, and I sit down too. And I just look at him, and I don't say anything. It's awkward, and I'm loving it. I then hand him a stack of papers. And on the front of the stack, the first page says, the following 200 questions will help me determine whether or not you can take out my daughter. Please be thorough in your answers. I will know if you're lying. So Andres looks at this page, his eyes get big, and he says, do you want me to do this right now? I said, oh yeah, right now. Here's a pencil. And he opens, and there's nothing there, just blank pages. He goes, Mr. Davis, there's nothing here. I said, oh, I know. I want you to come up with the 200 questions that you think I need to know about you. The poor kid. I mean, it's probably some level of, you know, mistreatment. But anyway, I said, Andres, I'm joking a little. And we carried on a conversation. They went on the date. It was fine. There's a protection that's God-given that comes in us as, as dads and as moms. And when we see the world that our children are growing up in or our grandchildren are growing up in, or if we're single, and we see uh, the, the children in this church are being baptized, and you've made a vow to assist in the spiritual nurture of the children which you have, we're concerned. We're concerned, and we should be, because there is a God-given heart and a God-given responsibility to care for these little ones continually. But how do we do it? As the culture shifts, and it has, and it will, the foundation that we build on doesn't. It never has for Christians, and it never will. And that foundation is the word of God, which is beautifully spoken spoken of in Deuteronomy 6. I want you to open your Bible up. If you don't don't have your Bible, you can use the Blue Pew Bible in front. Or if if you like, you can use the one that's in the bulletin. What you notice about... Deuteronomy 6 is the importance of the word of God. Now remember, they did not have Bibles in their hands. The printing press hadn't been created. So how are they hearing the word of God? How are they hearing it? Oral tradition. And so you see this picture of a journey. Did y'all see the journey as we read that? They're going somewhere. Where are they going? They're going to wherever the Lord is leading them. It's the promised land. The vow that he made to do all these things is coming true. It's happening. And these children are being told orally from their parents over and over and over again. This is what the Lord has done. Over and over and over again. This is what the Lord is doing. Over and over and over again. This is what the Lord has called us to be about. And then you get to verse 4. Let me read it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Do you remember when you used to say things like, I know it by heart? Like phone numbers. Some of you don't even know your spouse's phone number. Their name is in your phone. But if I said, well, what's the number? You'd be like, um, right? When we were little, we had tons of phone numbers memorized. Remember that? And we would say, I know it by heart. Well, that's what we're being taught here. These words, verse 6, that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them. And listen to all the ways he describes it. When you sit in your house, 
when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build. And he goes on and on with these descriptions of the Lord's promises. He is saying that it is the word of God that we are to build this life on. Now it's interesting. I said this this morning, but the very first question that Satan brought, the very first question in the Bible, it's not from God, it's from Satan, is about the authority of his word. And it still is. The te- every temptation that we face is about God's word. Did God really say this would be bad for me? Did God really say this idol might consume me? Did God really say this is how I should spend time on Sunday? Did God really say this is what I should fill in the blank? And God gives us his word with so much, so much life in it. Yet we have an enemy that wants desperately to take the word out of our lives. If he can't get it out of our lives, then he wants to use it in a way that it was never meant to be used primarily legalism or the abuse of grace. Think about it. This is a church that stands on the word of God. You've probably noticed this before, but if you're new and haven't, this pulpit, the pulpit, by the way, stands for the word of God. This beautifully designed pulpit has cast iron all at the bottom. It's unique. It's the only pulpit like this in the world. This has wheat growing up out of it, symbolizing the seed of the word of God being sown. And it grows. And people throughout the history of this church, it grows. There was a young man who came up to me today after the service. And he said, you know, one of the first weddings in this church, long before it was PCPC, it was the Baptist church. My grandmother got married here. She walked down this aisle. That's pretty amazing. This church stands on the word of God. Not in a legalistic way, not in a way in which we abuse grace, but in the way in which scripture was meant to be stood upon, embraced. It goes out and it grows us. You see, the enemy wants to take the word out of our lives. If he can do that, he will. How does he do it? Through boredom, through doubt, through distractions, through too much noise. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? If he can't make us not believe it's true, and I imagine all who are here tonight believe it's true, then he will have us look at it in ways that are not appropriate. Let me give you one example. Many of your concerns tonight, spoken, and many that were unspoken, are centered on the culture that we are confronted with that is very much against what the word of God says. Does everybody agree with that? It's a really, really dark world in a lot of ways. So the temptation is to think that we just need to retreat and get in holy holes and barricade ourselves. That's a temptation for parents, isn't it? I saw a stroller on the way here. I didn't want to look like a goober by rolling my window down and taking a picture of it, but it was a stroller unlike anything I've ever seen. Some of you may have them. I'm sure based on my paranoia as a young parent, we would have had that stroller. This stroller looked like it could survive a nuclear bomb. I'm pretty sure it's what the president gets in when the the Air Force One is about to go down. It was made of a material I've never seen. It was seamless. It It was exotic. It was amazing. I'm really serious. I know it cost more than my first car. I know it did. Wow. Well, our temptation is to kind of get into a bunker. And God in his holy word in the book of Ephesians gives us the picture of spiritual armament. He gives us this great picture of how we are to arm ourselves for the spiritual battle. And every piece that he mentions, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of what? Are all defensive. They are all meant to protect. But there's one offensive weapon that's given. And what is it called? The sword of the spirit. Now, a sword can defend as well. 
But the sword is also a weapon. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So think about it. If the devil, who is our enemy, fighting against us, can take our only offensive weapon out of our hands, how easy is that battle? And he does it. Even by people who carry Bibles around. Even by places that look like real churches. Take the word of God out. It's an offensive weapon. We need it. We need to use it and know it and know it by heart and take it into the world with love and mercy as we're called to go. That's a very important reality because the temptation is to move towards a bunker mentality. Again, if Satan can't make you stop believing that the word of God is true, he will seek to use it in ways that it was never meant to be used. Let me give you an example. Many Christian parents make a mistake of focusing in their parenting, and it's primarily out of fear, by focusing on behavior instead of belief. Now, certainly at a certain age, you must focus on behavior. But many times, that never changes. And what happens as parents raise their children is they don't necessarily move beyond that, just do it because I said so, or just do it because this says so. And they don't enter into the conversation about, do you even believe this is true? You see, belief is everything. It is. Belief is what motivates us to do the very things that the scripture calls us to do. Listen to this quote. You want to mess up the minds of your children? Here's how. Guaranteed. Rear them in a legalistic, tight context of external religion. It's all outside. It's all performance-based. Where performance is more important than reality. Fake your faith. Sneak around and pretend your spirituality, but it's not real. Train your children to do the same. Embrace a long list of to-dos, a long list of don'ts, publicly but hypocritically practice them privately. Yet, never own up to the fact that it's hypocrisy. Act one way, but live another. And you can count on it. Emotional and spiritual damage will occur. Our enemy, if he can't take the word out of our life in terms of what we believe, will seek to take it in a way that it was never meant to be. And we begin to focus on the wrong things and looking for the wrong things. And we become legalistic. And we may not say we're legalistic. We may talk about the free life we have in Christ. But the way our kids perceive it and hear it and see it is really ungodly. It looks godly. It has the appearance of righteousness. But it's all about self-righteousness. That's a very dangerous thing. On the other side, there's also danger. And that is where we don't really abide by the law. We don't really abide by the word. We begin to kind of live a life that says, if, as long as you nod him into the truth, you can kind of live whatever life you want. What's being offered in terms of entertainment mostly is really bad. The shows that are promoted even during a college football game I mean, I can't, I can't leave the TV on and walk out of the room to get a beverage if there's commercials playing for, you know, how kids are with the TV. I mean, they're locked on. And what they're seeing and hearing in the two minutes and two seconds between plays is awful. And it's only going to get worse. Right? The temptation is to compromise and not really seek the holy life that God has called us to. Now, this is not just for parents. It's for all of us. In your bulletin, I ask our staff to include the vows that we make as parents. The first three, I'm usually standing right here, right? Or one of our pastors. The moms and dads are right there. They're holding their babies. 
And I ask the three questions. I'm not going to read those now. But I do come to the next or the final question. And it's for all of us. I love this about our tradition. I'll read it. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of their children? And then I'll say, do you? And you will say, but you're usually louder. Do you? And this full sanctuary makes a commitment. I've often thought about what would it look like to be standing at the end of the service in the hallway right there as people are exiting and just ask the question, how? How do you plan to do that? You're going to hear me talk about this more and more, and I never want people to be motivated out of guilt. But because of the busy nature of our lives, because of how culture has changed and the the addiction to activity and the opportunity for you as parents to put your kids in all these different things, it's noisy, it's loud, it's busy, more than ever before. And parents of a different generation who say that's not true, I know it was busy then, it is busier now. I say that not as a parent, but as somebody who served as a youth pastor for 25 years, it's busier now. A lot busier now. And the commitment to the things of God is less everywhere. The the culture's changed. So here's what happens. When I ask for people to volunteer downstairs, some just out of guilt come. Some think I've, I've served my time. Others think, you know, it would interfere with our our plans to go to the lake house. We can't commit to every week. And so what happens is volunteers and staff people create plans. So we can't get people to come every week, so let's try to get people to come once a month. If that's all we're going to do as a church, we should stop doing children's ministry. Just stop. Here's why. In September... My seven-year-old, late September, comes to me, or we're just talking, she'll come to me, and she said, I don't even know who my Sunday school teacher is. It's just been a different person every week. Do you think that's good? Just tell me, really, do you think it's good? It's not good. You can do something about it. I can't. I have a job to do on Sunday mornings. Right here. Two years prior, she had the same couple teaching her every week. She knew who her Sunday school teachers were. She hugs them. She sees them. My friends, we are a big body of people. We can change that. We need to do so not by guilt, not by shame but by opening our eyes and opening our ears and listening to what God calls us to do. It may mean, given the season of life you're in, where you have more time, more flexibility, certainly the ability to travel more, that you need to ask God, God, do you want me or us to really come back Saturday night or even early Sunday morning in order to be present? Maybe you make a commitment for one year to say, we're going to be with that class. I'm telling you, it will change the dynamic of children's ministry in our church. That needs to happen. Our youth staff and the many, many volunteers that go on those things are desperately needed. Do you know why? Because we have made a commitment to assist in the spiritual nurture of our children. Our children. And the journey that they're on is a pretty dark place. We've admitted that. They need to see you. If I stood in the back and asked the question, how do you plan to assist in the spiritual nurture? Most of you might not have an idea. Most of you might be afraid of me. Like, oh no, he's going to ask us to do something. Don't be, because this is worth it. But the best thing you can give is a life in love with Jesus. Because kids are always watching. They learn more by what they see than what they hear. Do you all know what a scope and sequence is? Anybody? Teachers will know that. A scope is these are the things that we want to cover. As a youth pastor, I was asked that question a lot. It's a really good question. When I first moved here as the youth pastor, what's going to be the scope and sequence? 
from the time they're in middle school to high school, what is it that you want them to learn? It's a very important question. And then what's the sequence? What are the things that we want to repeat? I've said this before. It's an important question. But there's another question that's just as important. It's a little different, though. And that is, what do you want them to see? First of all, they're not going to be here every Sunday. So you may cover a very important topic one Sunday, check the box off and think, hey, you know, we did that. We talked about justification once, check box, move on. Can't do that. You got to keep coming back to things. But it's so important to ask the question, what do you want them to see? You know what I want my five-year-old, my seven-year-old, my 15-year-old, my 17-year-old, my 19-year-old to see? I want them to see men and women, young and old, who are captivated by Jesus Christ. Men and women who can't wait to go downstairs or go to the youth building or go on a retreat or a camp or a mission trip where they see that man, that woman is deeply in love with Jesus Christ. That is what I want them to see. And you know what? This church is full of people like that. You're here. I want them to see you singing with freedom. I want them to see you, if the Lord leads you, to raise your hands. I want them to see you maybe in a worship service just drop to your knees because you're so overwhelmed with the glory of God. This morning was so beautiful. There was a moment where I just got, I really felt like the Holy Spirit just kind of ravaged my soul. And, I, and it was when the choir was singing. And they're singing about our, our Savior, fairest Lord Jesus, in a new way. It just overwhelmed me. I couldn't do, I'm glad I didn't have to speak right away. That's what our kids need to see authentic, real, beautiful love for Jesus. But the enemy wants you to think it's not that important. The enemy wants you to think someone else is doing it. The enemy actually wants you to think that, you know, you started this church. You've put your time in. It is time for another generation to do that because we did that. I support that. I'm sorry. I will support that as long as you can show me in the Bible where it says it. And if you can, I'll put that in my heart. It's not there. Don't waste your time looking. This is the joy of being men and women called to love Jesus. I don't want to embarrass him. It probably will. But I think it's a great example. Many people here tonight don't have children yet. Some people here tonight... They're not married yet. They may never be married, but they're here. I love that you're here because you matter. The investment that you can make in the lives of these kids matters. Brian Zerang, stand up. Brian works on our staff. Brian, would you please shout out your title? The real title, not all the other things you do. Just your title. Yeah, manager of e-ministry. When the church started, we didn't have that position because there wasn't any e-world. Brian, how many Florida trips have you been on in a row? Fourteen. Brian's not married, doesn't have kids, but he's felt called to go. How many times have you been to Asia with the youth group? Now, I'm, I'm doing something dangerous right now. I'm tempting Brian, Brian to, to go. <laughs> yeah, I am pretty special. Thank you. Look at me. But that's not his heart. Thank you, Brian. He has said yes to that vow. And he's asked God how. And he's gone. And he's pouring into my son's life now. Paul and Ellen are pouring into my son's life now on Sunday mornings. Three high school boys in a communicants class. It's not a big group. There's a middle school group that's happening at the same time. I know y'all hate that I'm doing this. That matters. It matters. It matters. You're not done. I'm not done. This is a community. And we're committed to this. I mentioned earlier that my wife and I are starting a new thing that's gonna take place on Wednesday nights beginning February 3rd. It's called Parenting in the Present. 
About 11 or 12 years ago, the Lord put that title on my heart. We actually had a parenting conference called Time, subtitle Parenting in the Present. I liked the title so much that I asked Brian to, to save those domain names so that one day we could have them. Parentinginthepresent.org, parentinginthepresent.com, presenting in the parent, whatever, dot, dot, whatever. I wanted them all. <clears throat> I don't want anybody else to have it. We're going to copyright it. Because this theme means parenting in the moment, whatever the moment may be. It means parenting in January of 2016 as well as 2020 or 2030. Things are going to change a lot. What does it mean to parent in this present time? But it also means, what does it mean to be a present parent? What does it mean to really be in a place where you're able to listen to your middle school daughter as she comes in? And they can talk. They can talk fast. I mean, it's like, wow. What does it mean to be present in those moments when their hearts are breaking and when they want to talk? And you know when they want to talk? Do you know when high school kids want to talk? It's not you getting them up and saying, let's go get Starbucks in the morning. They want to talk at 12 or 12.30 at night. You better be ready. You know, you may look like a good listener because you're, you know, they need you. What does it mean to be a present parent. The image that our design people have come up with, it's, you may see it around the church, it's a hand. And then it has a little hand in it. When I first saw it, John Buell designed it, I, I thought about it for a while and I said, I don't think it's right. And the reason I don't think it's right is because it looks like we're just talking about parenting tools for young parents with little kids. I didn't say anything to it yet, I just kept mulling it over. Because this is not just for young parents. It's for people who are expecting their first and those who have a college graduate still living at home. It's for everybody, grandparents as well. And just as I was about to call John back and say, keep trying, keep trying, the Lord reminded me of what I taught at family camp this year. And what I taught at family camp this year was to every parent, it's your hand in God's hand. God is leading you. That is what that symbol means. And I fell in love with it. That's it. Mom, dad, grandparent, person called to this church to love the children of the church. It is your hand in God's hand as you lead these young people. The sovereign hand of God he really is sovereign. I know that more now than I did 19 years ago. There's nothing God can learn. There's nowhere God is not present. He's just as present with your child when your child is in their bedroom as he is when your child is on the playground. He's just as present with your child when they're at your dining table or when they're on a date with some sketchy dude and they're in college. There's nothing he can learn. There's nowhere he is not present. And there's no power he lacks. Here's the truth. I can only be in one place at a time. I can constantly learn about everything. I can only see what is before me. And when I don't trust God, I become anxious. I become anxious to think about the things I can't see, the things that I think I see, and the things that I do see. God sees everything. God knows everything. God is everywhere present. Parenting in the present, shepherding in the present, loving the children of this church in the present means that we shepherd them with our hand in God's hand. So with your hand in God's hand as a mom, as a dad, as a grandparent, as a member of this church who's made a vow to these kids, where is he leading you? 
How is he leading you? What is your story of rescue that these kids need to hear and see? This is the vow that we live under. It's the vow that he has made to us. We are, as Tim Tinsley often signs a letter, in his grip. I'm going to close this in prayer. I want to encourage you to tell people about parenting in the present. We just begin to market it. 80 people have already registered. There's no max. We'll take as many as we can. It's something we're going to offer at least once a year and many other things, topics underneath that umbrella. Tell people, come, pray for it, please. Re-engage. I'm going to tell parents every time we meet and talk about parenting that they need to go to re-engage at some point, which will be offered again in the fall. This is really important stuff. After I close in prayer, you're going to have a wonderful time listening to Andrew sing a song that you all know, but like me, struggle to believe. It's simple, it's powerful, and theologically, it's spot on. And then we'll sing one final hymn together. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that you have brought brothers and sisters here tonight, many different stages of life, many different experiences within this church. And you have given us a beautiful moment to soak again in your word. Lord, Deuteronomy 6 calls us to stand on that foundation. It calls calls us to trust in your promises, to teach the word, not just by the way in which we speak it, but the way in which we live it. Change us, Father, for the sake of your glory. Change us that these children might see us. We're so in love with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.